Good morning, everyone. So good to see you. Welcome to Union Chapel this morning. We are in the season of Lent on the Christian calendar, 40 weekdays between Ash Wednesday and Easter Sunday. Easter's in two weeks, as Pastor Glenn mentioned. And so we're in the middle of this series on prayer. And I hope it's been practical, meaningful, applicable to you. The whole motivation behind it is to encourage you to increase your prayer life, to enhance your prayer life, and make a difference in your prayer. Today we want to talk about healing and restoration. This is a a big subject, a big topic, and is relevant to all of our lives. We all need healing. We all need restoration, not just personally, but in our families, in our community, uh, in our world. We need God's healing touch. And so we're going to talk about this wonderful promise found in the book of 2 Chronicles. So if you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Chronicles. You better get a head start on that, looking for it. 2 Chronicles chapter 7. This is the account when Solomon had finished building the temple, the first temple in Jerusalem, and God visits him and reminds him, gives him this beautiful promise of his willingness to answer the prayers of God's people a promise given to Solomon and still relevant to us today, and I hope it will be meaningful and encouraging to you today. So Second Chronicles chapter 7, I'm going to read verses 11 to 16. Our custom is to stand to hear God's word, so as you're able, thank you for doing that. And when Solomon had finished the temple of the Lord and the royal palace and had succeeded in carrying out all he had in mind to do in the temple of the Lord and in his own palace, the Lord appeared to him at night and said... I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a temple for sacrifices. And when I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command locusts or devour the land or send a plague among my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land." Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. I've chosen and consecrated this temple so that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. And may God inspire us today through this powerful promise. You may be seated. Thanks so much. Read an article the other day. The columnist entitled this article, America Needs a National Healing. America Needs a National Healing. How many of you agree with that? that America needs to be healed. Absolutely. We need healing in our businesses, in our government, in our neighborhoods. We need healing in our families, restoration in our own lives, our minds, our hearts, our relationships, our bodies. We need the healing grace of God. Now, 3,000 years ago, God made a promise to Solomon. And this wonderful promise of answered prayer is found in 2 Chronicles 7, 14. I'll put that verse on the screen just so you can see it one more time. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sins, and I will heal their land. And what a beautiful promise. It begins by saying, if my people who are called by my name, in other words, this promise isn't for just anyone in the world. This promise is for those who name the name of God, who belong to God's family. One day Jesus was teaching with his disciples and his mother, 
Jesus' mother Mary and his half-siblings with their mother wanted to speak with him. And so one of the disciples came over and said, your mother and brothers are here to speak with you. Your family's here. And Jesus responded by saying, who's my family? Who's my family? And he used it to teach that anybody who receives Jesus, anyone who names his name, is part of his family, is included, is grafted into the family, is adopted in. And it's a wonderful reminder to us that as the people of God, we become that part of the family when we say yes to the wonderful gift that God offers through Jesus Christ. And so in this verse that we find in Chronicles today, if my people who are called by my name, and so we, we get the promise now is given to the family, given to the people of God. Now, there's an interesting verse that we find in Mark's gospel, chapter 8, verse 38. I'll put it on the screen. Now, look at this. This is, this is pretty sobering. Jesus said, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this unfaithful and immoral generation, I'll be ashamed of him when I return in glory with all my angels. Now, now I don't know if that sobers you, but that's pretty sobering to me. Jesus said, you don't want to be ashamed of me because if you're ashamed of me, in a, in a rough generation, a generation that's turned their back on God, if you are ashamed of me then, I might be ashamed of you then. And so it's, it's very challenging. Now, we live in a culture right now where it's not popular to be a Christian, to be a Christ follower. In fact, what's happened is uh, it's like open season on people with biblical values and, and, and mores. And so what's What's going on, I, I'm sure this isn't true of any of you, but I'm just saying what's going on is that Christians in general are kind of hunkering down in today's culture. And, and people at the water cooler at the office may or may not know if you're a follower of Jesus or not. And people in your classroom at school may or may not know that you know Jesus. And people in your neighborhood or your primary associations, they may or may not know that you follow him. But this is no time to be hunkering down. This is a time to let your light shine, to love people authentically and genuinely, and to encourage them to know what you believe, and to be open-minded, open and honest about what you believe, and to invite them into conversation about what they believe. It's, it's, it's a right time for that. The opportunity is great. Some of you in the room today remember the, the Lady Clairol. This is an old marketing icon. This was about hair dye, and Lady Clairol was this woman who had had her hair dyed in these commercials, and of course, she was beautiful, and her hair was just shiny and spectacular, and then the tagline was, only her hairdresser knows for sure whether she's colored her hair. Do you remember? How many of you are old enough to remember that? These are the old people in the room. So <laughs> Lady Clairol, only her hairdresser knows for sure. Listen, there are no Lady Clairol Christians. No secret agent Christians, not in the economy of God. So if you know Jesus and you name his name, the expectation is that you are forthright about that. Otherwise, Jesus may be ashamed of you. So the prayer begins, if my people who are called by my name, and then we find four conditions. For every promise in the Bible, watch it now, for every promise and. Some people think there are as many as 7,000 promises in the Bible. For every promise, there's a premise. For every promise, there's a premise. For every promise, there's a condition that's required for it to be fulfilled in your life. 
This verse in Chronicles is no different. If my people are called by my name, and then these four conditions, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Now let me just unpack those four conditions with you this morning real quick so that you, you understand what the conditions are because these are the conditions for healing and restoration in your life and in our world. And so they must be important. So here's the first one. You want to write this down. It's on your outline. Admit that I am not in control. Admit that I'm not in control. This is the if my people will humble themselves. Humble themselves. Now, what does it mean to be humble? Ever thought about that? What does it mean to be a person of humility? Well, I think it means, uh, it means that I'm kind of weak and... and, and uh, unassuming and and I'm always very quiet and people don't expect much from me because I you know I'm not very strong about things that's not humility that's not it that's that's not being humble humility is a quality of your character it is a virtue in your life that emanates not from weakness but from strength The humble person knows who they are. They know who made them who they are. They understand who God is in that relationship. But they prefer, they prioritize the needs of God and others over themselves. So they're humble. They have humility. It's it's strength that's subdued. It's strength that is submitted to God's bigger plan. It's strength under control so that it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't imply uh, a, 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 a destruction of who you are as a person. Well, I'm just, I'm nothing, I'm nobody, I'm not, not at any account, I have no value. It's not that. But rather, it's not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less so that you prefer God and you prefer others. It's a person of humility. Let me just give you a, a, a short list of characteristics of a person who, who's humble. See, if, see how you do with this. You can't write these down. I'll just go too fast. But here's, here's, a, here's one. A humble person will confess their sin to God the moment you realize you've sinned. Number two, humility is forgiving another person quickly. Number three, a humble person is when you're treated unfairly, you respond by being quiet and patient, and refusing to retaliate. A a humble person is when you look for ways to serve others instead of expecting to be served. Humility is being respectful to authorities in your life, even the bad ones. Humility is when you pick up the trash wherever you find it. You know, a humble person will go into a public restroom and leave it cleaner than what when they found it, even if no one else was in there. No one else is looking. No one else will ever know. But see, a humble person will leave it cleaner than they found it. A humble person will admit your weaknesses and your sins to a few safe persons. A person of humility will always speak well of others, never using a put-down when referring to someone else. Again, it's not thinking less of yourself, 
I'm a nobody, but rather thinking of yourself less. You know who you are. You know, you know your qualities. You know your capacity. You understand who you are in relationship with God. You, you're self-aware, but you prefer. You make a priority making God and others more important. That's a person of humility. Now, you may say, what's the big deal with about being humble? In fact, some of those definitions you just gave, you know, I'm not very good at that. And so what's the big deal? Uh, listen, humility is a huge, 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 massive deal when it comes to your relationship with God. It's interesting to note that nowhere in the Bible does the Bible command us to pray that God will make us humble. Nowhere do you say, hear, hear a prayer going, you should pray that God will help you to become more of a person of humility. In fact, if you ever hear yourself praying these words, something like this, and God, you understand, this is just an illustration in my sermon. I'm not actually praying this. <laughs> oh, God, please make me more humble. Hmm. You don't want to pray that prayer. Because here's, here's what. God listens to prayers. And God answers prayers. So you don't want to go around saying, Oh, God, please make me a person of humility. Ew. Are you kidding? What are you, nuts? Because you know what God will do? Oh, he'll give you all kinds of opportunity to become more humble, less prideful, more self-reliant, more full of yourself, less ego. Oh, God, yeah, God would just, just start chopping you down to size. You, don't, shouldn't, you shouldn't pray that. In fact, the Bible doesn't ask you to pray for that. And just the opposite is true. Watch what the Bible teaches in our verse today. If my people will humble themselves. Humble themselves. So the responsibility of becoming a person of humility is our responsibility. That falls to us. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God so that he might exalt you at the proper time, casting all of your anxiety upon him. And so this is the... This is the the, the way to humility is to monitor and manage your, yourself in humility. Now, there's all, kinds of, there's all kinds of benefits to being a humble person. I put some bullet points under that first point. Look at this. You want to write this down. If I'm humble, God will guide me. You need the word guide. Psalm 25, 9. God leads the humble in the right way. I get appointments from people in my office all the time, as you can imagine. The single most frequent question that I've been asked over the years when people come for pastoral advice is to answer the question, how can I know God's will for my life? How can I know if this is God's will for my life? And it comes in all kinds of varieties and all kinds of perspectives and all kinds of stories. Everybody's got a, got a narrative that they share. But the bottom line, the main question always is, how can I know God's will? God's primary purpose for my life. And here's what the Bible promises, that the humble person, God will actually lead. He will guide the person who thinks less of themselves and more about God and others. The humble person, a person of humility. It's really interesting. So prideful, arrogant, self-reliant self kinds of people, these are hard for God to lead because they've got their own attitude, their own idea, their own their own plan. Here's another benefit of humility. If I'm humble, God will bless me. He will bless me. Listen to Isaiah 66. I will bless those who have humble and contrite hearts. I will bless those people. 
Not people with big egos, not prideful people, not people who think they're better than, than other folks. And you never say, I feel like I'm better than another person, but it's what you think. And, and, and so the blessing of God tends toward people who are people of humility. It's a big deal. Look, here's another one. If I'm humble, God will give me the power to change. You've tried to change, but you can't. And the reason you can't is because you don't have the power to do it. You can try as hard as you want, but you know it's impossible for you to change. You need God's help. You need his power. Let me tell you the word that describes God's power for change in your life. It's the word grace. God gives you grace. Listen to James 4, 6. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Isn't that a beautiful promise? And I'm just saying humility is a big deal. It's just a big deal because if you're a humble person, God will give you power to change. Look at the, the next one. If I'm humble, God will reduce my stress. That, that's a huge deal, isn't it? Because everybody feels the stress of life. Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29, take the yoke that I give you. Learn from me for I'm gentle, I'm humble, and I will restore deep rest for your soul. Can you feel that? See, the humble person actually gets rest for their soul. Less stress. So humility is a big deal. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, humble themselves, become a person of humility, that's the first condition to a life that's healed and restored. Now here's the second one. Write this down. Number two, ask God for help. My people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. This is the ask for help, the pray part. Over 20 times in the New Testament, we find the Bible teaching us, commanding us to ask in prayer. You have not because you ask not. Ask so your joy may be full. Ask and you shall receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door shall be open. Over and over and over again, 20 different times in the New Testament, we find the Bible teaching us about the importance to ask, to actually engage in prayer. I gave you a few bullets there about uh, practical Practical steps in praying, just very practical. Look at that list with me. Remember, Jesus wants me to ask. Remember that. So when you go to God in prayer, you say, God, I hate to bother you. No, no. God wants you to ask. He invites us to ask. And so remember that he wants us to ask. Then ask in Jesus' name. This is a very important uh, point of prayer. If, if, you, if you, Lord, I come to you today in Greg's name. I just, I, let me clue you in. It's not going to get very far. Maybe the, maybe the most wonderful saint you know, her name is Susie. Lord, I come to you in Susie's name. There's not enough authority there. There's no weight there. So you pray in Jesus' name. Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Now suddenly, okay, now you've got God's attention because now you have enough weight, you have enough substance, you have enough authority in place to get God's attention. So we pray in Jesus' name. And then you get other people to pray with you. James chapter 5, you know, bring the elders of the church and pray. And so get as many people praying with you as you can. That's a really good idea. That's in the Bible. Um, and then believe and expect God to answer your prayer. I love Matthew 18, 19. Listen to this verse, Matthew 18, 19. If two of you agree about anything that they should ask, if just two of you agree 
about anything that they should ask, it will be done by your Father who's in heaven. Matthew 18, 19. What a wonderful verse. What a wonderful promise. So in other words, don't pray alone. Find someone else, at least one other person to agree with you, to pray with you, to stand with you, to, to, to yoke up with you. There, there's something, there is something powerful released in the economy of God in the area of prayer when we're unified. If two of you agree about anything that they might ask, how, how cool is that? And so get others to pray with you. And then believe and expect an answer. Believe and expect an answer. And then the last thing is keep on praying until God tells you to stop. Don't give up. Ephesians 6.18, pray all the time, all kinds of prayers, always for God's people. Don't stop until God tells you to stop. So ask God for help. If my people will humble themselves, will pray. And then here's the third thing. Write this down, number three. Seek God, not a miracle. Seek my face is the phrase. Here's the reason God calls us to seek him rather than some other phenomenon. Because when you get God, you get everything else. When you seek God first, then everything else gets added to it. Yeah. You will seek my face. What an interesting phrase, right? And so no matter what you've been through, maybe you've gone through a divorce. Maybe you've lost a child, a miscarriage. Maybe your business has failed. You've lost your job. You've had a crisis in your life. And you know you need God's help. You need his grace. You need his strength. Here's, maybe you have a loved one who, who's ill. Maybe the diagnosis is very threatening. Maybe it's very critical. Here's what the Bible teaches that you shouldn't go chasing miracles, but chase after God. If you can get a good hold of God, God will take care of the other things. If you pursue God, seeking his face, seek to know God and to know his ways as a priority in prayer, then the other things will sort out. Years ago, I decided that I was going to become a good golfer. You know, I have an athletic background, so I, I was just out of college, and I just thought, yeah, I'm going to become a golfer now. So I started playing a lot of golf. I quickly discovered that golf is a game you can play and never get better. <laughs> some, some folks enjoy golf because, you know, you're outside, it's fresh air, it's good exercise, uh, you're often with others, you know, it's a good fellowship and, and all kinds of beautiful connections there. None of that matters to me. You have a different personality. I have my own personality. My personality is to try to, you know, shoot par because that's the course's, you know, standard. And if I'm, if I'm with person B, then my primary goal is I want to beat that person. <laughs> doesn't matter who it is. And that's, that's me. And I quickly, I quickly discerned that uh, golf is, is a, a game that is designed to frustrate and um, challenge your faith. <laughs> a lot of praying on golf courses. 
I don't own a set of clubs anymore. <laughs> I still have the shoes. Um, but I don't wear them because it'd be weird, you know, wearing golf shoes around, not playing golf. So I, I, don't, I don't try it anymore. But I do realize this. Uh, in order to play golf well, and some people do play, play it well, if you're going to play golf well, you have to play a lot. It takes a lot of time. If you're going to go play a round of golf, I mean, I mean you've got to take the afternoon off, right, to play a round of golf. It takes hours to do this. And it's expensive, too, on top of that. So there's a lot of time and a lot of expense involved in, in playing better if you're going to be a golfer. And so you've got to calculate that. And you've discovered in your own life, no matter what you've tried to get better at doing, you want to master something, you know, get really good, become a professional in that category, you've got to put the time in. You've got to put the time in. There's nothing new under the sun, right? I mean, that's just common sense. I mean, you've got to work at it. I mean, you've got to encounter it. You've got to engage it. You've got to put the time in. And that's true in golf, and that's true in any other kind of, kind of meaningful category. And so when you talk about prayer and you say, you know, God, help me to be better at prayer. And sometimes God may just answer back and say, great, you've got to put the time in. You've got to seek my face. You want to you be better at prayer, then you've got to put the time in. You want to get really good at prayer? You want to get really close to me, really intimate in our relationship? You just got to put the time in. It's, it's no different than any other relationship you have. You got, to, you got to give yourself to it. And that's what it means to seek my face, to get close to God. I was with a very good friend this week, a very precious friend, and we have, we have a common acquaintance who is also a person in ministry, Christian ministry. And this other person who's a common friend of ours has really incredible influence. This is a man who's pastored many years, has grown a church and reaches thousands of people and has been a confidant to presidents and, and heads of state in other countries uh, three million people follow him, you know, on Twitter kind of a thing. I mean, he has enormous influence. And as a, as a casual friend of this, of this person, you just step back and say, man, God has really used him. That is really impressive. And my other common friend that I was with this week, he gave me some insight into our other friend and his life. He said, you know, I was just with him not long ago, and he told me something about his life, and it explains a lot. He said, for decades, he has gotten up and spent time with God every day from 4 a.m. to 8 a.m. He said he does it seven days a week, and he's done it for years and years and years, decades, tens of years, every day, seven days a week. He said, everybody else's day starts at 8 a.m. He said, so I start my day at 4 a.m., and I start reading this is when I've read all the books I've read, and I start praying, and I start leaning into God, and I spend four hours studying and praying every day, right up to 8 a.m. And 8 a.m. is when everybody else's day starts. He said, and I just blend right in with everybody else at 8 o'clock, and then I live my day, and I do my life, and then I go to bed at 9 o'clock every night, and and I sleep for six hours. I get up at three, and I get all prepared, and then I get to my study at 4 a.m., and I do it all over again, and he's done it his whole life. 
So you step back and you look at him and you go, well, he sure is lucky. Look how lucky he is. You know, once a month, the president sends a plane down to where he lives and flies him to Washington and sits and listens to him as a spiritual advisor. Wow, I wonder how you get that job. That'd be pretty cool. Wouldn't that be fun? He sure is lucky. He must know people. He must have been in the right place at the right time to get an opportunity like that. And then he writes this little blog and three million people read it around the world. And then they, they invite him to Israel and he leads a prayer meeting of international Christian leaders in Jerusalem. <laughs> He's the leader of it. Wonder how you get that job. Wow. And on and on it goes. Listen to this verse. Psalm 114 verse 2. Listen to it. The Lord looks down from heaven on the entire human race and he looks to see if there's even one with real understanding. Just one who seeks after God. And we live our lives and lives get busy and, and life happens and stuff happens in our lives and, and, you know, details pile up and schedules get crowded and calendars get full and pressure points start building all over the place. And I get it. It's easy to get off track. It's easy to get distracted. It's easy to miss the point. But if you want the healing and restoring virtue of Almighty God to be present in your life, in your family, in your stuff, in your world, then it requires an intentional seeking of the face of God. There are no shortcuts here. There are no easy buttons. There's no drive-up window for this. This requires a decision, a choice to lean into your relationship with God and to make that a priority. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. So don't go looking for some blessing or some favor or some miracle from God. If you'll seek God and you'll see him more clearly and relate to him more intimately, all the other things in your life that you need, you'll discover God is providing his grace for that. Now, let me just come to the last point, the last condition. And this is the phrase, and turn from their wicked ways. Turn from their wicked ways. So here's number four. Turn my attention from the world to the word. From the world to the word. Now, when you hear the word, turn from your wicked ways, in our vernacular in American English, we hear wicked and we go, man, that's, yeah, that's like the worst kind of sin, right? That's the really dark stuff. Wicked. That's wicked. And, and so we may misinterpret what turn from their wicked ways means. Because when you start parsing out the original language of the Hebrew, here's what wicked actually means. It means, it means the process of forgetting God. The, the simple and yet consequential process of forgetting God. Now think about that. When we forget God, we start doing all kinds of bad stuff. Follow it. When society forgets God, 
Society engages in all kinds of wicked stuff. But it's really about forgetting God. Let me ask you a question. Do we live in a culture now, a society now that's turned its back on God? Have we forgotten God? In fact, are we intentionally pushing God away from us? I don't want God telling me what to do. I don't want God or anything associated with God. I don't even want to believe in God. And people who believe in God, I push them away and I criticize and ostracize them as well. And so I turn my back. This is the process we're giving witness to an entire culture that is forgetting God. It's happening. And when we forget God, wickedness fills in the gap. But one of the conditions for finding renewal and healing and restoration is to turn from that wickedness. Isaiah 17, 10 says, you have forgotten. You have forgotten the God who saves you. And you have not remembered what, that God is your place of safety. God is your place of safety. And we've forgotten that. What do you mean? My, my bank account's not my safety? Well, my, my boyfriend's not my safety? God is my safety? Oh, oh yeah. God is the rock. God is my foundation. God is the cornerstone of my life. God is the sure footing for my life. So I best not forget God. But the phrase goes like this. Turn from your wicked ways. Turn from. Now what does that mean? Well, turn, again, if you sort it and parse it, turn actually means to repent. And when you hear the word repent, uh, sometimes we think, well, repent is, uh, yeah, that's when I do something bad. I feel bad, so I feel bad. And so I'm sorry that, I, that I've done something bad. That's repentance. That's part of it. The essence of repentance literally means to change your mind, to turn from going one direction and go the other direction. This entire building is named the 180 building. It's around this concept. Going one direction, you do a 180, you go the other direction. So we have an entire culture that has forgotten God, turned their back on God, and walking away from God, ignoring God. And the Bible admonishes us then to turn from forgetting God, turn from your wicked ways, turn from that and start facing into God and leaning toward God and moving toward God. That's a condition. That's a condition for the healing grace, the restoring grace of God's virtue in your life and in our world. And so we hear that condition. God, I'm going to stop running from you, and I'm going to start turning toward you. I'm going to repent of my wickedness. I'm going to repent of ignoring you and forgetting about you, and I'm going to turn and start leaning into you and my relationship with you. I turned from forgetting God when I was 16 years old. I repented, and I started walking with God. And here's what I learned very quickly thereafter, that it's really a good thing to start walking toward God. Repentance is one of the most beautiful words in the whole language. Repent is a great thing. It's a good thing. It's a wonderful thing. Because I discovered that when I repented, I went from guilt to forgiveness. When I repented, I went from darkness to light. I went from no purpose to having a purpose in my life. I went from hopeless despair to a hope for eternity when I repented. Repentance is a good thing. Turning away from the world and turning toward God is really great. 
Acts 3.19, the Bible says, repent and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out so that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Proverbs 28.13, if you hide your sins, you'll not succeed. But if you confess and reject them, you will receive mercy. James 5.16, therefore confess your sins to each other. Pray for each other that you may be healed. Yeah. So these four conditions, did you hear them? Did you, did you get them? If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, ask for help, and seek my face, not chasing after another blessing, but seeking a relationship with God, getting close to him, developing intimacy with God, seek my face, and turn from your wicked ways. That is to change your mind, to turn your back on an old life and to start facing toward God and leaning toward him, then the promise kicks in. Then will I hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Now let me just remind you what we're doing. You've, meant, you've heard me mention in the past that there are these 500-year increments. We look back on history over the last 2,000 years of the history of the church of Jesus Christ in the world, and we see that about every 500 years, the church finds itself in crisis. The Council of Chalcedon in 451, this is when, this is when there was a crisis about whether or not Jesus was God, the divinity of Jesus was in question, and the Council of Chalcedon met, and they reconfirmed that foundational doctrinal truth of the Christian faith, which is Jesus is preexistent, co-eternal word with God. And the Nicene Creed was approved, and the church began to explode. And then 500 years later, about 1054, the great schism, when the church divided East and West, Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, it was an historic split. It was a big deal, and the church was in crisis. But the church responded, and there was a move of God's Spirit out of that crisis, and, and the world was changed. And then you fast forward another 500 years, and it's the Protestant Reformation, 1517, Martin Luther initiates this conversation, and now this Protestant, that the, the, there was a whole group of people who protested against the teachings of a church in crisis and re-embraced the basic doctrines of the faith, and, and the church began to thrive as a result of that. And now fast forward to 500 years. Did you know that just last October was precisely the 500th anniversary of the beginning of the Protestant Reformation? We happen to be alive right now in this moment of history at a pivotal time because once again the church of Jesus Christ is in crisis in the world. And what we've observed historically when crisis occurs like this of historic proportions that the church doubles down on prayer the church doubles down on their dependence on the Holy Spirit, work of the Holy Spirit. The church doubles down on intentional discipleship where people gather together in groups and reaffirm our faith and support and encourage one another in the journey. When the world around us is hostile, it's important for us to, to lock up arm in arm and say, look, we're going to get through this and we're going to do it together. And then the church gets very aggressive in expanding the borders of the kingdom through evangelism and missions and church planting and those sorts of things. And so this year, Union Chapel is giving itself to these historic responses. We are talking about prayer in these weeks we're in right now. Right after Easter, we're going to talk about the work and presence of the Holy Spirit and our dependence on Him. 
all year long, we're doubling down on small groups and encouraging you to get involved in small circles of believers who can encourage and support you. And then, of course, we're doing all kinds of initiatives with expansion of the kingdom here and there through church planting. And so we are, we are simply posturing ourselves in this moment of history. We understand there's crisis in the church and there's needs in the world for healing and restoration. And so we are posturing ourselves in a historic way, in an obedient way, to sow the seeds that God might use to bring a great awakening, a spiritual revival once again to our land and to our world. Now, I have to say, now as your pastor, I don't, I don't know if we will live to see a great awakening. I don't know if we will. But I do know this. God is calling us to sow the seeds for this kind of move of God's spirit. And 100 years from now, I can, we may be a great part of the great cloud of witnesses. 100 years from now, we'll be looking back and say, there's the revival. Finally, the great awakening has come. And we may not see it while we're alive on the earth, but we were part of sowing the seeds of that great awakening. And before God, that is what he's calling us to. He's asking us, he's inviting us to respond just like the faithful people of God has always responded in moments of crisis. And we're going to pray. We're going to depend on the Holy Spirit. And we're going to hang on to each other. And we're going to go through this together. And we're going to continue to reach out and make a difference in the lives of people who are yet to find the hope that we have found in Jesus Christ. And that's why we've asked you to fill out these cards today because in two weeks at Easter, we want you to encourage people that you know and love and are precious to you. Invite them to come with you to Easter and we'll tell them about Jesus and invite them to know him. And that'll be a great, great opportunity. And so here's what I'd like for you to do. If you haven't filled that out, if you could do it real quick and if you have... Uh, as we sing, if you'll just pass those to the aisles and the ushers are going to collect them and then we're going to raise them up and pray at the end. And so if you'll prepare to do that right now, appreciate that very much. Now let's pause and just pray for just for a moment. Lord, you've uh, given us your word, this wonderful prayer. If my people will humble themselves, pray, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then you would hear us. You would forgive our sin. You would heal our land. And Lord, we need healing. We need to be restored. We're in crisis. We need your help. And so we lift this prayer before you and ask that you would help us to prepare our own hearts to be faithful in prayer and effective in the sowing of seeds that might spring up to a new day and a new hope in your spirit. Thanks for hearing us, and we ask it in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen.